Welcome to the latest instalment of the Ace Records podcast with myself, Pete Perfides. Um, it's hard to think of a band whose influence has been quite as inversely proportionate to their British chart positions as The Zombies, a band adored by Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, Paul Weller, Tom Petty and Dusty Springfield, who even asked them to write a song for her. In America, though, it was a different story. Their career there was bookended by the number one success of She's Not There and then, at the very end, Time of the Season, the latter of which made its ascent to the top spot after the band had gone their separate ways. Odyssey and Oracle, of course, is a record which, in the five decades since its release, has become one of those albums to be pulled out along with Sgt Pepper, Pet Sounds and the Bee Gees first when your children ask you what the 60s were supposed to be like. As with the Beatles, whose influence they were so upfront about, the Zombies benefited from the presence of two master songwriters in their ranks. Perhaps the better known of those two was keyboard maestro Rod Argent. But for those of us who get off on looking at songwriting credits and making unsubstantiated generalisations from them, there's something about a Chris White songwriting credit that serves as a kite mark of a very particular sort of excellence. I'm talking about the elegant vulnerability at the heart of songs such as I Can't Make My Mind Up, What More? can I do I love you and I don't want to know and then later on his sublime contributions to Odyssey and Oracle maybe after he's gone brief candles and friends of mine being exceptional cases in point but then really you can drop the needle on almost any zombies record and feel that Tom Petty had a point when in his 1997 intro to the group's definitive anthology zombie heaven he wrote if a group like the zombies appeared now they would own the world so with all this in mind, it's an absolute privilege to say hello to the one and only Chris White. Hi, Hi Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Good. We've, we've met once before, but there's absolutely no earthly reason why you should remember it. Shall I tell you where it was? Yes. It was on the fifth floor bar at St. George's Hotel. Um, and along with the rest of the zombies and also happening that day was a memorial get-together in honour of the tv theme titan ronnie hazelhurst where was that well it was it was on regent street it was you know the very tall hotel st george's hotel next to bbc center oh yes yes and i think you were probably doing interviews with quite a few people that day in advance of the shepherd's bush concert yes of course i remember yes and uh and it was very striking. It was a lovely. Uh, it was lovely to spend an hour in your in, collectively in your company, actually, because after all these years, you know, you were still very visibly comfortable in each other's presence. That is a that's that's the one best thing. I think we only just got this award recently because a we're still four or five of us are still alive. And we still like each other, which is a rarity for a 60s band, to be quite honest. It is, yes, yeah. So are we talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yes. Has that now actually happened? Was yes, it? we went and played to 14,000 people, and it was absolutely fantastic. And Susanna Hoffs gave an incredible introduction to us, and um, it was just wonderful occasion. It was like justification after all that time. And we did four songs on stage. What did you do? I mean, I can probably guess too, but what, yeah, what well, were the Well, they two? wanted us to do uh, She's Not There, uh, Tell Her No. Then they did uh, This Will Be Our Year, which they cut out on the broadcast. <laughs> and um, Time of the Season. Wow, yeah. incredible. It was fantastic. I'd, uh, this Will Be Our Year is one of those songs which just, I guess as you get older, just kind of... It's become a wedding song now. <laughs> has it literally become a wedding it song? It has. I played it at three 
weddings and uh, two of my sons as well yeah do people write to you and say can you do this song at our wedding no but met um graham nash graham nash, graham nash and met his girlfriend when we went to the rock and roll hall of fame and his wife wants this will be our year to be played at her wedding to him <laughs> that's amazing though isn't it yes wow yeah. it is it's funny feeling it's weird feeling it's a very unusual song. Uh, I mean, obviously, we'll come back to or- Odyssey and Oracle in the fullness of time. But it's a very unusual song for that time in that setting because there's, there isn't a side to it. It's just it's just unabashed, good-natured, good vibes. Hope, yes. Yeah. 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 You, were, you were very good. I guess that's kind of a piece on that album with friends of mine. Yes. I, I remember writing. I was sharing a flat with Rod at the time and um, I, was, I had some friends around and, and I played it very slowly on guitar and then when we, when we were doing stuff at Odyssey and Oracle Rod said why don't we speed it up and then we need something at the chorus so why don't we put all the names of people we know most of which have got divorced since then and um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a requiem <laughs> yes it is yes really but it was a pleasurable thing at the time you know it's lovely. So, is there is there a, that does that slow version exist anywhere on a tape somewhere? No, I never did it on tape. I was just playing it to somebody in my room. Yeah, basically. Sounds that sounds like a nice thing. Um, so, you're, uh, I guess, um, obviously, you, you were you were the bassist, and um, that was something you got from your father, wasn't it? Yes, my father uh, was played double bass. He was a shopkeeper. Originally worked on London Transport as a uh, an inspector years ago. Do then. you remember seeing him in in his inspector role? No, never in his inspector role because I was five when we moved out to Hertfordshire, and uh, and then he played double bass in big bands and things because my family's quite musical as well. So um, then I started playing double bass i guess at that point all bassists were double bassists weren't they yes yes it was only when we saw the shadows and um and uh other yes it was the shadows and uh with several tours we went see that a fabulous bass you you don't have to hold, carry this thing around i yeah. he, my father did teach me to have my double bass in a mini <laughs> Uh, how, how can you get a double well, you, bass? You go in, you go in the front, then over the back, and then the, the back is there, and then you have the neck up by the passenger side. It's <laughs> it's not it's not easy. And then I, but I do remember as a kid, he had the double bass on the back of his car. He had a, a fitment where he used to carry it on the back of his car. Yeah. What literally, like on top of the car? No, on the back like, where the right. spare wheels sometimes go. Oh, I you see. Know. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess you had to be ingenious. Yes, and be careful of traffic. <laughs> but that's interesting that you know that's a, that, that you should have had a specific memory of your father. You know the mini and the double bass. That's kind of a, like a, a lovely little snapshot in a way. Oh, very much so. Yes, my, my dad was a great father. Now his younger brother played in the Billy Turner big band and was the arranger, and then he became an arranger for the BBC and did all the arrangements there. Right. And he he just died a couple of weeks ago. He he got to a hundred. Wow. And was he? What wasn't he the 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 chap who took you to see Oh Boy being recorded? That's that, right. Yes, okay. fantastic. Jack Good program, and that was really exciting. Yeah. I can imagine. So, what that would have been? What nineteen fifty eight or something? Must have been. It must have been. To just to see. I mean, you know, to, I guess not, not that many people would have had televisions anyway. To, so to actually no, see a TV program being made. And, and the big shock for me going to see it because I've seen it on television was it's in colour. <laughs> <laughs> the curtains were red, you know, and on television, of course, they're, they're black. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, even in my mind's eye, I'm imagining you walking into black and white world. Yes, it, 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 it was quite shocking. Because yes. I said, oh, it's in colour. <laughs> <laughs> Who was on that week? Uh, Chris Cliff Richard, uh, Vince Eager, uh, of course, Lord Rockingham's 11. Was that the famous, the, not Cl- Cliff Richard doing Move It, surely? No, it was after that. Because I mean, he did been. other songs. And then, yeah. Seeing the band live as well, Lord Rockingham's 11, you know, which was very yeah. exciting. So, what, doing Hootsmon? Uh, yes, is a moose loose about the hoose, yeah. Okay, and that was, they were, um, that was a guy who, that was a guy who went on to famously arrange Riverman by Nick Drake, I think. I didn't know that. Yeah, Harry, is it Harry Robinson? Yes, that's right, yeah, I remember yeah. that name, yes. And of course, I didn't see him then, but Duffy Power hmm. was part of the same stable, Larry Parnes thing. Yeah. Rod and I did an album with him many years later, which was never released. Really? Yes, we've still got it, yes. To this day, never released? Yes. Well, that needs to surely be remedied. Such a great singer, Duffy Power. Really was fantastic, you know. How can, we, how can this album come out? Surely this album needs to come out. It is coming out with the project that I was telling you about earlier. What, is it coming out on Ace? Well, it, no, we're putting it ourselves distributed by Ace, probably. Very good. Amazing. Wow. Okay. And so that's interesting. You mentioned the sort of um, people like that, uh, um, Duffy Power, and, you know, people kind of coming through this uh, stable of talent, which is sort of nurtured by L- uh, Larry Parnes. And I'm thinking, well, here, here are the nascent zombies out in St. Albans, still at grammar school, yeah? No, I was at art college. I, I was studying fine arts. Okay. I was going to be a teacher until we won the contest in 64. Okay, yeah. So, okay, we'll come to that. Because okay. that's... Uh, but, um, but were you... So were you... Um, the other, the others, were, were the others a, a different school to you? Colin, myself... And the original bass player went to St Albans Grammar School, the county grammar school. Right. Rod, um, Hugh, and Paul were at the the um, the, the what's, what's it was called the Abbey School. That's right. right. Okay. Yeah. And I thought so what I'm getting at really, I guess, is to sort of St Albans must have seemed St Albans is not far away from London, but I'm guessing that maybe it must have felt far away from London to you watching this kind of ex- all these events happening so sort of quickly in the west end of London and you know people kind of being vaulted from certain cafes in Soho onto programs like Oh Boy and up the pop charts. It was exciting, but uh, I was asked to join the Zombies about 8 months after they started. Uh, or it might have been longer because their original bass player wanted to concentrate on his A levels, mm. and I was and I knew the manager of the band. He was in school with me at St Albans Grammar right. School, and so I just went along, and then we started. We we clicked, and we started doing three part harmonies. And you were already friends with Rod at this point, though, weren't you? No, were you not? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. No. So how did you? There was a, I. I read somewhere because there was. Didn't you sort of knock on his door oh, or something? Oh yes, I, I wasn't friends with them. I said I was playing in to make money as a student. I was doing yeah. dance band stuff and dances and things, and um, someone we was short of a keyboard player, hmm. and I knocked on his door and he he wasn't interested. His dad was a in the dance band, but right, uh, okay. he wasn't interested. You know. 
hasn't changed much. <laughs> was he polite? I can't, I'm trying to no, imagine. He was fine. He, I imagine you knocking on his door, and yeah. that must have taken some guts, really, to knock on someone. Not really, because I was introduced by a friend of his, the original bass player. Right. Okay. So okay. I knocked on his door. I said, "Would you be interested?" Not really. So. <laughs> And back at, the, at your core, I guess, at that point, I guess you saw yourselves as an R&B group primarily? That's what we were called, yes. I joined when they had decided to call themselves the Zombies because yeah. they tried all the other names and found there were groups with, groups with that name already. So, um, anyway, I like the name Zombies. It's like the Beatles, you know, a, a name is then identified with the group instead of, mm. you know, being the undead. Totally, yeah, absolutely. It's a good name. It's still a good name now. And you, um, so I guess you, um, ha you rehearsed in Hatfield. Yes, yes. At the, I've forgotten the name of the place. It was at the Church Hall, and there's, the, I've gone, forgot what the name is now. Yeah. Could you, can you, can you picture it in your head? Oh yes, yes. Because actually, a few years back, a Dutch TV crew made a film about us about about the album. And Hugh Grundy, the drummer, took them up to show it where, where it used to be. It was so much smaller than, you know, when you see it later. <laughs> so I remembered it from that TV programme more than anything else. Oh, OK. Yeah, it's funny how, like, pictures in magazines and TV programmes can often sort of superimpose themselves over yes. actual sort of memories. Yes. And you see, actually, with groups remembering their own history, often, you know, if, especially if you, you're interviewing, like, superstars, you know, they'll they'll sort of almost tell you a version of their own history that you'll recognise from a television programme rather than yes, the, the books true, that you've read, yes. you know. Um, so, yeah, so, but you did see yourselves very much as an R&B group. Uh, yes. You kind of got... You, I, I, well, we I, did covers, basically. And I got the sense that you attracted a sort of slightly left-field crowd as a result of that. I, well, I don't know if we did, if they were left-field. They were a lot younger. <laughs> right, OK. And actually then we played in rugby clubs and things because the school had a rugby club. and mm. So we, we built that up. We played intervals, first of all. Intervals? Yeah, between artists and um, okay. comedians and things. And you had, I guess, and in that, I guess the earlier you, you, early on, like so many, like the Beatles or anyone really, you had to have a good repertoire of covers to really oh, sort of yes, yes, please people. Yes. What it, were the songs you liked playing the most? Are you asking me now? <laughs> Over 55 <laughs> years later. Usually musicians can remember those things uh, a lot more uh, clearer than the, they can some, remember. Uh, some Beatles songs. Yeah. Um, some Searchers songs. Uh, uh, drifters, you know, and it's an R and B thing. I can't remember many of the R and B things. No, it's, okay. it's it's quite interesting that we did the art school dance right mm. uh, several times because we were at St Albans Art School. I then did some stuff with Pete Brown, who wrote the lyrics for Cream. Right. Okay. And he and I was involved doing stuff with him. And basically, he wanted an album called "The Art School Dance Goes On Forever." So he went to Primrose Hill and he invited all the musicians who came from art school there were too many of them he couldn't take the photograph <laughs> so many musicians in the 60s came from art school why do you think that is art school offered an opportunity and we had grants in those days so you didn't have to take loans out to explore creativity mm. and it was an explosive time for art um, and and then because art is equated with music it's about patterns and different ideas so a lot of a lot of, I mean, even Lennon was as well. So, you know, they were all at art school. What were your areas of speciality? You know, what what were you, presumably, 
No, well, I'll tell you what, there was, we went to a fine arts where they taught you to grind, grind oil paint and prime canvases and things. It wasn't graphic design or anything like that. It was useless in a way because it was four years and they, all they were doing was training you to be a teacher. Oh, really? I was okay. going to be an art teacher. Uh, did you all along did you feel that that's what you were there for that if you could at the end of this if you could be an art teacher that was probably not a bad outcome at, at that time yes yeah but okay. i i liked recently i saw tim minchin when he did his graduation thing and he said don't have long-term goals have short-term goals yeah it's easier <laughs> that's not a bad idea generally i think in life you know um yeah, because yeah, otherwise you lose sight of what's really important. Or you get disappointed when you get your goal and then there's nothing else to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I guess a lot of things really sort of significantly changed for you guys when you entered this Hearts Beat competition at Watford Town Hall. Well, we were going to split up uh, because they, I'm two years older than the rest of the band. And basically, they were going to go to college or something like that. I was going to be, te- I was going to do another year of teacher training mm. after the four years there. So we entered the contest as a last farewell. Mm. And it would t- went over several weeks. And, um, and we won our heat. And then we won the actual contest. And uh, <laughs> we thought, what are we going to do now? Let's try it out for six months. <laughs> But it came in the nick of time. I mean, I get the impression, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that certainly your father seemed like a more li- liberal presence in your life. All he said was me, he said, look, if, when I first went to art school, he said, you're going to have your friends buy motorbikes and things like that, and you won't be able to afford it. Are you sure that's okay? And when I went to the music, he said, just do it. Amazing. Yeah. That's really... That's Very so supportive. Brilliant. And actually, he used to... he, As he had a shop... We used to buy amplifiers, and he used to buy them, and we used to do, like, every time we gig, we paid him off, you see. So he was very useful like that. So what what, what did his shop sell? Well, it was a general store in the village, So it's, and then he started selling furniture and painting things and everything like that. So, Wow. A gen- so very a, supportive man. Really exceptional. Presumably more supportive than maybe the rest of the band's parents. There were a couple of parents who... Thought it was. I mean, remember when we? I remember Paul Atkinson, who's sadly gone a few years back. Yeah. We came back from the first American tour we did was um, uh, the the oh, what's his name, Dick Clark show. That's yeah. right. And he came in exhausted on a night flight and came home and really tired. And then he sat down. And then his brother, who was training in the city to be an accountant, came in. And so his mother said, "Oh, Paul, he's had a hard day at work. Can you go out and get the coal from the shed?" Oh my word! <laughs> that was the that was the way he was treated. It wasn't a job. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. work. Yeah, but of course, you know, as we all know, you know the kind of the 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 travel, and certainly in those days, you know, bands really did have to work. You know, oh, yeah. two sets a night, and the travel alone, and the promotion, and all the rest of yes. it. Yes. Um, so you, so that kind of you won that that competition really in the nick of time. Maybe not so much for you because because obviously you had more supportive uh, family, but um, but there, it did allow the rest of the band to sort of defer their sort of educational plans, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, there were supportive parents. They were they'd signed the contract because when we signed, originally signed contracts to get a, a publishing deal, they were underage then. Right. Okay. I was the only one who didn't have to have my father sign because I was twenty one. <laughs> Did you feel that? I remember, you know, the, um, seeing an interview with um, 
the the Beatles being interviewed for uh, the antho- for the anthology set in uh, in in the in the early nineties, and there was just a sort of no- uh, George George saying something that like, Paul was eighteen months older than me then, and he's still eighteen months older than me now. So meaning that that seniority, that sort of you never it never quite goes. Well, it yeah. didn't matter for us so much because the leader was Rod. I mean, yeah. he was. He he was the leader, and you got a voice like Collins. Yeah, uh, it there was no hierarchy. Right. Okay. We each had if if we wrote songs, we had to prove it to the others. It wasn't done unless they all agreed, and we rehearsed it. So you had to really give it your best shot when you're playing them for the first time. Oh yes. Yeah. Wow, that sounds kind of nerve wracking. Yes, it is. Yeah. Especially like with I guess because I get the impression just through because. Rod had so many more songwriting credits. Well, no, actually, Rod didn't have many songwriting credits because when we got the first deal, through my uncle introducing us to Ken Jones, the first producer, um, he he said, well, we're going to the studios. uh, Perhaps you could try writing something. Mm -hmm. So Rod wrote She's Not There then, Mm -hmm. and I wrote the B-side. There was nothing before that. I just thought I, I'd like. Was it was that not the case? Because certainly on the first album and the uh, and the kind of the sides, the the kind of singles that were released in the wake of the first album, I thought there maybe there were slightly more Rod credits than yours, but maybe oh, not. No, no, there were there were a lot more of Rods, but basically he, that was, she's not there. It was only the second song he ever wrote. The second he ever wrote. Yes. Wow. I was just. Um, you know, re-listening to a lot of songs, you know, uh, in advance of sort of coming here, and the, uh, there's, a, I still notice something new in "She's Not There" every time I hear it. Yes, the structure was totally different. We always tried to be not what was expected. Yeah, and the harmonies, especially to to this morning, I kind of it struck me that the harmonies are like more like a sort of modal folk song than yes, because Rod was in the St Albans Abbey Choir. Oh. So his consciousness about harmonies was from a different area of music. That's interesting because they're, they're almost like medieval harmonies, yes. really. Yeah, and that read that again. That's another thing that kind of you, you even if you don't notice it, you, at an emotional level, you feel that difference. It's not outside of the norm of pop music. That's right. Um, Pat Metheny once we said to Rod, he said, I love the modal structure. And Rod said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he went back and analysed his chords and read up about it, realised he'd instinctively done modal structures and the chords at the beginning. I think if you isolated the vocals, in a way, it'd be more obvious that that's kind of... That's what, true. What's we had influences from classical music because I used to go to classical concerts and mm. jazz, of course, yeah. modern jazz. And Dick Rowe, fam- these days, Dick Rowe, I guess, is famous, and unfairly so, really, as the guy who turned down the Beatles, because, of yes. course, he signed signed so many other yes. groups, including yourselves. And he famous, he sort of offered you a deal, he offered you a contract there and then, didn't he? Yes, he did, but that's where my uncle came in, because we had all these offers after we won, and we said, well, there were no, lawyer, no music business lawyers around then, so... Um, my dad said, go and see your Uncle Ted, because he's in the music business. And we went to see Uncle Ted. He said, well, I don't know anything about pop music. What was his area of expertise? So he, he he played all saxophones and arranged for the big bands and then arranged for the BBC. That's right. So anyway, he said, go and see Ken Jones, because he produced records and he's another. Uh, he played with big bands. So I went along to see Ken Jones with his contracts just to see what was good and what was bad in them. 
So he went through them and said, that's a bad clause. That's a, that's a good clause. That's terrible. And uh, when we said afterwards, well, what can you offer us? He said, well, I'll give you all the best clauses. Oh. So our first deal, then he signed us with Dick Rowe on a, on, on a, on a lease tape deal. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So we got the best advice right at the beginning. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that's invaluable. It is. And uh, That's why I still earn money from my royalties. Really? Yes. A very, a very rare thing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so you were sort of, you were touring a lot. I mean, the great thing about this zombie heaven box, amongst many other things, is you get this, um, you get a sort of your tour itinerary from year to year, and you so you really get to see how a sort of picture of how you must have been evolving just as a live entity as much as anything. That's um, what you learn your chops, as John Verity used to say. Is basically. You have to go out and keep playing to as audiences as small as ten. <laughs> right. Yes. Of course. And then you get you get to see yourself as other people see you in a way, and so especially if you're playing with other bands. So I'm thinking about towards the um, end of 1964, which was an incredible time for you, really, because that's when she's not there, sort of scaled the American charts, and you toured over here with the Isley Brothers, didn't you? Oh, fantastic! They were great fun, and you learned so much from them, and. Um, Hugh, the drummer, learned a lot more from their drummer as well. And then the drummer said, no, I like what you're playing anyway. So learning those things and from Dusty Springfield and Dion Warwick and touring with all those people, you know. What what kind of, how did how did you seem to those people? That's kind of I'm really interested in in, in that, how you would seem Unusual. to the Isley Brothers. Unusual. They, they loved what we were doing, but it was totally different from what they were doing. But you you use, you use it's entertainment. You, you, you have to please the audience. And it was fun watching them. And they had, mind you, they had uh, they had the Alan Elston band, the jazz band, supporting them. <laughs> and so did Dion Warwick, you know. So right. it's it's so it was slightly after they didn't have the big American musicians. Yeah. When we went to America six months later, to the Murray the K's Christmas show in '64, mm. we played like Benny King, the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las, the Drifters, uh, and it was it was we were really worried. Because we were, were we going to stand up to their level? But they were so helpful, so friendly, and they just. And when we later did the Dick Clark tour, we arrived late, and there was about fifteen black acts on mm. this on this thing. And then at night, we travelled through the night. We we stayed on the bus every other night and had a hotel, and they started singing gospel and blues songs and everything. And then they suddenly say, "You limeist, you sing something." So Rod and Colin started singing um, a Beatles song, and they were t totally knocked out and accepted us from that point onwards. Wow! Well, that's a, you know, it's um, a lot of those Motown groups when they came over here, and you saw it later on with the Stax singers as well. They were they were completely unprepared for the reception that they got over in over here because. It was a lot less blinkered in a way the reception oh, yes. they got over here, and they weren't playing to segregated audiences and and so forth. So it was it was like a an, it was almost like a glimpse into an idealized future, wasn't it? Exactly. And in the forties and fifties, the black American jazz players went to Paris because their acceptance there was they weren't used to it. Mm. When we toured in the southern states with the with all these black acts from the Dick Clark tour, it was frightening. You got refused service. And it was, we weren't used to that. No. Because musicians and people are people, it's simple yeah. as that. And you're so young as well, it's just kind of it's like a frightening thing to 
Yes. Be a participant in it. And we don't understand the hatred. Yeah. It, it, we don't know where it came from. You know? And would you talk about that with, with the musicians? Oh, with yes. The black music? What would that, what, what, can you remember what they would say? Yeah, well, they, they said, you get used to it. You, you, and they accepted us because we had English accents. If we were American, their acceptance would be different. And know? they must have seen how appalled you were at some yes. of the practices that you were. Well, witnessing. Colin was actually at the time going out with the lead singer of the Velvetts. I didn't know that. And it, well, on the tour anyway. So he walked. We had one of those stops on the road at night, and he walked around with his arm around her. And then tour manager came. We've got to leave. You, they're going to get shot. He was in the southern states, oh my and he word. had his arm around a black girl. That's unbelievable. And then one other time, we had a lot of rednecks come up, and they started shouting from their truck. You know, and um, but the really abusing all the coloured acts, the black acts, and and basically then this college. Uh, coach came up with rugby uh, football players, and they were they were appalled as well. And they turned the they turned the rednecks van over on its side. <laughs> so we wow. said, you know, that was that was the good side of the Americans. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. They that's, didn't accept it either. That's some, that's amazing. And the 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 um, I read a quote somewhere that it rather tickled me actually. The, the the way a conversation that you were apparently having with the Isley brothers, where you were talking about how you and Rod were both Miles Davis fans. Yes, yes. And the, the Isleys were a little bit thrown. They said starvation music, man. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> it's never quite as you as you would expect. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, you were kind of thrust into this incredible situation, uh, you know. It's like a magic land, really. Two days, you missed Christmas Day on, um, on, in 1964, because you, you spent Christmas in America. for the Oh, first. yes. We were doing, I think it was six, Rod says eight, shows a day. But you only did one or two numbers, because it was, and then the audience came in at eight o'clock in the morning. And they could stay for that. Once you got in, you could stay in. And then in between the gigs, there was a film. And then we did, you know, six to eight shows yeah. a day. Now, did was it? There's this thing that I've seen Rod um, allude to uh, on occasion in interviews that apparently they were just constantly after your hair, like the kind of create the kind of really obsessive fans. We, we weren't used to this. Don't forget, it's only six months since we'd become professional, <laughs> and we go out the street, and then Paul. Paul used to get, we used to go outside and they they find him cornered by little girls trying to cut bits of his clothes off and things yeah. like that. And the police rescued him, and they said, we'll do it this once, but you never go out again. So we had to stay inside, so we got to know all the artists in the different dressing rooms. It was like a prison, really. And it just seems weird to me that, you know, they, they would actually... It's not like an impetuous scene. These fans would leave the house with scissors, presumably knowing that they, that, oh, yes. that they were yeah. after clothes and hair of their heroes. <laughs> it's, it's funny, we're on the tour with, with the Shangri-Las, where... Um, we were running to the bus after a gig. Hugh was a little bit late. He fell, he got pulled by his hair backwards, though he's lost his hair since then, but he got pulled backwards. And then Fat Frankie, the roadie for the Shangri-Las, picked him up and carried him to the bus because he had bits cut off him, you know, clothes oh, wow. and things. I mean, it sounds terrifying. Yeah, but it's you just know you have to be careful because it's enthusiasm. Yeah. But uh, uh, hearing people scream, they really get hyper active yeah, you know yeah. and um by this time you were managed by a kind of quite a big uh, larger than life character tito T burns tito yes. burns who yeah. i guess most people remember because he was in that famous scene yes. in don't look back trying to play off yes different 
was it TV shows or agents against agents? Each? No, it was it was Dylan was coming over and that's he right, was, yeah. that's right, yes. Um, is that pretty much what he was like? He was old school, and um, uh, I can tell you a story why we stopped being with him. Basically, it was we didn't have any work over here. Rod and I were earning some money from songwriting, but the others was just gig money. Right. Paul Atkinson was getting married. So we said we we've got to we got to get some gigs. So we went to Tito, and he said, "I've got a couple of gigs, ten days for you in Manila." Yes. Wow. Yes. And um, we said, "How much?" And he said, "A hundred pounds a night." So we each said, "No, between you." And so he took twenty five percent. So we were earning eighteen pounds each night, and we thought we'd be playing in a hotel foyer you know a small gig mm. they said that they'll pay for all your accommodation your food and your transport and everything when we arrived there at three o'clock in the morning thousands of kids met us and we didn't realize we had three records in the top 20 there yeah because it's before the internet we you didn't. arrived at some like, was it 3 a.m or that's something that's right yeah three arrived. o'clock in the morning and when they drew up where we were staying was where we were playing which was the second biggest astrodome in the world next to houston astrodome <laughs> and we played to 30,000 people a night for 10 days for 18 pounds each. <clears throat> did, did, did you real at the moment you got there, did you, did you, did it feel like a fit up? Not at that point. We were very trusting. Yeah. And um, basically we had a, a Chinese bank owner who was an th- enthusiastic vinyl. He represented Decker and he took us out with his family for a meal and said, basically, I think you are being done. We said screwed, but basically, yeah. we said, well, what we can do? And he said, well, ask that you've got a 10-day option uh, for extension. Go back and ask for a £1,000 a night. And uh, we said, well, what if they don't take it up? He said, well, I've put a consortium together. Uh, the mayor of Manila is godfather to my son. Yeah. And I said, a group of people will take you. And so it turned out that um, he did turn us down, and he did. Then the consortium got together, yeah. but then the, we were threatened. And basically, the first club we played at burnt down the next morning. Oh, my word. And the second club we played, they said, we, I, we were doing the tune-up, and he said, well, I can't, can't put you on, being threatened. Had you, had you got your passports back? Because when your passports... I had, yeah, to- I had to go to the... We had to pretend to go to the airport because we had to leave and get new visas. Yeah. Uh, and, and they got our passports. And me being the oldest, I had to pick them up and hold them. As Would you tell them... Mr. Aranita, that um, are we going to stay? And that these two big Filipino guards and the, the management representative said, Mr. Aranita, not going to like this. <laughs> so we le- leapt over the counter and we, we stayed at another hotel. Oh my it word. was frightening. It sounds right, because of course the Beatles had been through something similar, hadn't yes, they? Yes, a few, and they, uh, we kept being asked that, what about those awful Beatles, you know? So we said, we pretended not to know anything about it. There was a headline in a newspaper which I think said, Zombies say Beatles are louts and hooligans for attacking our first lady. <laughs> that was a Filipino, it must have been, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yes, yes, I don't imagine well, it was that. President Marcus, and you say, yeah, well, yeah. it wasn't really democracy at all. Because they refused to meet the uh, Imelda Marcos, didn't they? No, it wasn't they refused. They didn't even know about it. Did they? Okay, right, okay. Yeah, I thought they'd refused. I no, must they hadn't have refused. They didn't, they didn't know about it. Blimey. And what would you, what would the conversations between you be? Because obviously you only had each other, you know, in this very alien situation. It's quite interesting because the shows were, in, I mean, thirty or 40,000 people a night. That was, that was 
unbelievable. Well, those at that point, surely the easily the biggest audiences you must have played. Oh yes, yes, yeah. And how do you, is it basically that? How how do you alter what you do playing to that? You know, how is it different playing to that amount of people to playing, say, you know, Watford Town Hall? Well, the funny thing is, when you first play Watford Town Hall, it feels, feels enormous. But yeah. when you went back recently, it's tiny. Yeah, <laughs> but sure. your your concept of it is uh, engendered. It makes you feel that you're playing the biggest place. Well, is the biggest place you ever played ever? Yeah. You know. Um, but because um, subsequently we found out, I, I got a, a confession from one of the people who worked for Tito that he was getting two thousand pounds a night for us in exchange right, for okay. two sets of contracts. Okay. I mean, really, you've been you've been sustained by that. You know, you're the, the that one bit of good luck you had, where you actually signed a good deal. Yes, that's kind of made all the difference for you, hasn't it? Yes, it's it's, it's funny. It's it's difficult finding the good people who mm. do it because they love the music. The people who just make a living. Because this fellow said to me, he said, "Well, why did he do that? Why did he said? Well, if we, he said that, he said if we hadn't done it, someone else would do it. Yeah, <laughs> in a per completely sanguine way, I would. Imagine. Yes, yeah." yeah. Um, business, music business, you know. Um, Tom Petty in his, uh, I think in on, on, I think maybe on the line notes to Zombie Heaven, I think he said he first saw you in 1965. I think he said that you had a raccoon's tail hanging from your base. Actually, it was a tiger's tail, which it was an advert for one of the petrol companies at the time. I've still got it. I'll put the tiger in your tank. Yes, that's right. Okay, but I yeah. just hung it off my base. Oh, I see. Okay, so you do. Was that just a hab habitual fixture? Some some fan gave it to me, so I thought I'd just fix it on the the, the end of the base. Okay, you know? fair enough. Let me. I, I'd like to ask you about some of your particular. I mean, I guess you you guys were writing very quickly, so maybe you might not even know remember the circumstances in which you wrote them. But it would be nice to try anyway, because um, let's. T I was going to start with a couple of early songs, like um, I can't make my mind up, which is a particular favourite. I can't make up my mind. Yes. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, it's funny. I can remember writing that one. I can't remember the circumstances, right? Because I wrote on piano. Because you can't write on the double bass or the bass. So, so you were adept. Uh, even at that time, you were adept. Were you? I wasn't adept. I was capable okay, <laughs> of right. playing guitar. And well, my father played guitar as well. Yeah. I remember all all the family gatherings where he used to play Frankie and Johnny all the time on his guitar. But anyway, um, writing that song. Colin complained, he said, because you're squeezing far too many words into the, the, oh, the really? tipper, yes. But yeah. did that make you think about, I guess that must have made you think about what works for a singer? Well, Rod and I both say that our writing was geared totally to the quality of Colin's range yeah. and his ability, because you write for somebody. Hmm. Is it, I guess it must be easier to write with someone in mind yes. than to, just to write recreationally, yes. just because. yes. And then there's I Don't Want to Know, which, again, you know, it's kind of uh, quite ahead of its time in a way. It's got that lovely kind of birdsy sort of guitar going on. Yes, the 12-string. We, we like that sound as well, yes. Who's, who's, who did that 12-string belong to? Paul Atkinson, the, the guitarist. They got, that must have been quite hard to come by at that point in time. Well, no, there were a few going around. You could, Dean Street and... and um, not Dean Street. Um, Denmark Street. Denmark Street, yeah. yes. yeah. Um, can you remember t much about the circumstances of sort of writing that one? Or 
No. <laughs> you, you just kind of have a spare minute, presumably, and you just kind of... Oh, well, you, uh, some what, With writing songs, it's either a, a phrase, a sequence, yeah. or, or a pattern which st- starts you off, and then it just develops, really. And talking about... Um, oh, Denmark Street. Denmark Street. Yeah. You did hear the other day that we got presented by the Bally, Buddy Holly Foundation with a, a replica guitar that was handmade for us, the wow. zombies, by Tim Rice and Mike Reed in Hank's Guitar Shop. <laughs> it's ironic, isn't it? Because like, cause Denmark Street is hanging on by the skin of its it teeth. It is, yeah. And uh, with the Soho redevelopment, you know, yes. it's still unclear as to whether or not it will survive. I know. Which is kind of crazy. History, yeah. Well, you know, we celebrate it on one hand, and then on the other hand, it's kind of at the moment. I think it's literally on one side, it's just a facade. Yes. There's nothing behind it. Well, the Regent Street Studio, Regent Sound is still there, I think. Right. Okay. We, did, we did a few, lot of demos there for Rod and I, you know, years ago. I, I mean, it sounds like it's very easy for someone like myself who wasn't there at the time to romanticize that that little area of london because it just seemed to be that that's where all of pop music seemed to be happening but i guess um i guess if you were living through it at the time you probably didn't really stop to kind of question it of course you did yeah it was exciting because when when we signed the contract i had the contract we went to get new drums new bass guitars because she's not there was recorded on a handmade bass yeah yeah and so we had new equipment Mm. um and um box Amplifiers, which it changed everything, didn't it? Like uh, uh, Rod buying an electric piano seemed to be like a, a yes. mass, massive step for you, didn't it? Well, it was electric. It was a pianet. That was right. the thing. Uh, and then he got onto the Vox Continental. <clears throat> Were you trying to? Was I don't mean this in a in a sort of uh, pernicious sense, but just in the same way that Lennon and McCartney were trying to outdo each other, and they kind of recognised that that was good. That kind of positive rivalry was good for the band. Was there a sense of... Oh, yes, there was. In any writing partnership, though Rod and I didn't write joint songs at that point, is basically you have to prove the other person. You have Mm. to get acceptance. You have to work on things. And that rivalry can be constructive or destructive. Ours was constructive. Was it... What would would constitute a good reaction from Rod? What were you looking for when you would play him a song? That works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah let's try this <clears throat> okay. nothing nothing more than that no really. nothing more than that we no. did we did it in rehearsal with the band you see so we yeah. worked on things well while we had the instruments with us and was it hard to obviously you had that sort of chart success but she's not there and then there was a succession of songs which in this country didn't chart I would, I trying to put myself in your position, I would start to sort of think that maybe I'd be a little bit nervous, I'd be a bit worried that I might have to get a kind of quote-unquote proper job soon. Were any of these things considerations for you? No. Why not? Uh, because I love music so much, and right. it was exciting writing. And it was, I was going to be an art teacher and an artist, basically, so in this, when I started writing songs, I stopped painting. Right, okay. Because it, they're, they're, they're similar mm. disciplines. And so, um, and, and what happened really was our second single was a song I'd written. We were on tour with Tito's tour going around England. We came back overnight and yeah. to record this, and we weren't happy with the recording because it, it made Colin's voice soft and gentle. Mm. When we played it on stage, it was much harder, mm. and that was Leave Me Be. Right, okay. And, um, and, it, and it, we didn't like it, but it was put out as the next single. Those days, you didn't do albums first. Yeah. So, um, and then we were never allowed to be on the mixing sessions of our singles. Did you, presumably you asked to be. Yes. And we said, no, you don't come in. 
because that was that was the formula for the day basically then and then um, that's why rod and i wanted to produce ourselves right yeah because you must have been gazing on at sort of you know i guess the obvious example is the beatles who had this very symbiotic relationship with george martin yes. uh, who was very receptive to very their much. sort of input and that really and that brian was, wilson as well because creativity which got yeah. the beatles going and different things but that option for, for a long time that option didn't seem to be available to you no but that and so when we came back from the philippines we had no manager Decker had dropped us, and uh, we wanted to, Rod Knight, who were the writers, weren't hearing the songs as we heard them in our heads. Hmm. But then our production, Ken Jones, said, well, yeah, okay, fine, we'll get you into Abbey Road. We were the, one of the first groups who weren't signed to EMI to go into Abbey Road. And, and you recorded, and Odyssey and Oracle was recorded quite a while before it came out, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was in 67. Seven, yeah. Well, weren't the Beatles recording Sgt. Pepper at the same time? No, they'd just finished. They were coming out as we went in. Different, we were in Studio 3, they were mainly in Studio 2. Mm. But they had left the Mellotron there. They had. Which Rod put... went straight to and used on the... We were only recording on four-track, don't forget. Still, I know yeah. the Beatles were. I guess if the well, Beatles the had Beatles to... had invented this system, or got them to do four-track, then a bounce to another four-track onto two tracks and, yeah and so that sort of thing was that a system that you were familiar with did you have to do or um, we, are we, we, we were using jeff emmerich so he'd done it yeah yeah <laughs> so we we use that rod remembers different and as we get into our 70s we remember things differently as colin would say yeah well of course yeah didn't you also it wasn't um gus dudgeon was kind of abruptly promoted from tape op to engineer our first, not session, our first session that's right um we did when we recorded in deck in those days you recorded night time right we went in the evening but the engineer ken jones was producing the engineer had unfortunately been at a wedding all day was pissed out of his mind and was abusive and, and colin has always said basically i thought if this is what recording is going to be like i don't want to do it <laughs> Uh, but then he unfortunately collapsed in the control room. Did you say he was abusive? Yeah, he said, fucking get on with it, you know, basically, you know. <laughs> sing the, the uh, what's this <laughs> song called, you know, get on with it, basically. And then he he collapsed. And uh, we had to carry him out, you know, all of us, four of us taking us up, put him in a cab, never never saw him from that day to this. <laughs> the, t the tape operator was Gus Dudgeon. Was that his first? So first, that was that his first, first de facto first, production? Yes, his first engineering because Ken Jones was a producer. But oh, yes, and we were friends with him long after that. You know, yes. that's incredible. Wow. And so, okay, so moving back to Odyssey and Oracle, which was, so you had it. Was, it was a blessing, really, to be on a different label at this point. And you must yes, have we were on license deal, so we weren't signed to labels. Right. So then, CBS was starting off in England then. And they gave us a thousand pounds to do an album. That seems like a lot for for that for that time. Well, not really, because Abbey Road wasn't cheap. Right. Okay. So what we had, to, we went there in three-hour sessions. We had to do. So we probably did two songs in a session. Right. But then we went in totally and utterly rehearsed. We rehearsed every single thing before we went in, because bass, guitar, and drums were put on one track, hmm. keyboards on another lead vocal on the third and then harmonies on the fourth it's interesting that um as you said you couldn't have heard sergeant pepper because the beatles had only just finished work yes, on it yeah uh but 
what you were doing wasn't sort of dissimilar in many ways there's a sort of thematic kind of unity to to a lot of the record and yet you and rod were writing separately yes that's kind of fascinating to me how it's everything is so cohesive and yet we thought alike and we learnt we all learnt together we grew up together musically being influenced by uh the Beatles and by Brian Wilson. Which another interesting thing is, we, we this September we're doing eighteen days in three weeks with Brian Wilson. Oh my word! We're doing Odyssey and Oracle, and he's doing two of his albums. Oh wow! The, uh, I, I couldn't be more excited. Have actually. you? Have you actually? Uh, I mean, I, I met Brian. I, you yes. must have met him, I guess. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, it was very funny when Paul Atkinson was uh, ill in I think two thousand and four. We went over to Los Angeles to do uh, at the House of Blues a concert because he owed a million dollars in medical bills. Yeah. And Brian Wilson's band was there. And Hugh and I went in for the day for, for getting a sound check because we hadn't played with the others for, for many years. And um, and uh, the, uh, the one of them came down and said, oh, it's Chris and you come up and meet Brian. So we went up the stage. The band bowed down to us, which was unexpected. <laughs> And they had our album. Would you sign the album? This is we had we had no concept of being famous at all. Well, you really had to. I mean, after you you find this a lot. Certainly, I've with some musicians I've met over the years where almost you know you're the last person to be told yeah. that you know that an album that you kind of had written off or maybe thought was forgotten. Well, nobody wanted the album over here. That's why we split up. And the other other moment that happened to me was when we did. Shepherd's Bush hmm. Paul Weller came back every night and I'd never met him and sort of I really liked what he was doing so backstage I shyly went I pulled it's Chris White I he gave me a great big bear hug and he said Chris White you're the reason I started writing songs now <laughs> that from nothing you know that was unbelievable well, Paul is a fan. Paul is a Paul is still to this day a collector and a fan. And, oh yes, you know, he, he, he he he's a lovely man, and he, is. he keeps doing music. He's trying to do everything, you know. So he, uh, I saw him in the audience at that Bloomsbury uh, show um, about fifteen years ago or something. The, yes. the, the one that was billed as the Zombies, but I don't think you yeah, played. No, it. that was the Rod Collin and the yeah. Touring, which was yeah. good band. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I just remember him in the foyer, just looking very excited about what, yeah. what was. He's a lovely man. He's a musician. He's a yeah. Musician. And um, Dave Grohl as well was another one surprised me. Yeah, that was. I heard that. That was that was a surprising one. It was. He he, he did he did uh, this will be our year on one of our albums, the record store release thing, record day. Right. And um, when we did the last first American tour, we heard they Foo Fighters were all coming. They didn't come backstage because we thought they didn't like it. But then on the last tour that Rod and Colin did, he came up to Rod and he said, I was I was too overcome. And his yeah. wife said, yes, he he was crying three times to your, <laughs> your gig. Rod said, basically, were we that bad? <laughs> Sometimes you don't go backstage because you're kind of imagining that the band is besieged and the last thing that they need is... Yeah just someone else backstage you know yes. usually if i don't go backstage that's probably the reason well well rod doesn't like to know who's the front of stage actually because he, he worries that he's going to perform badly you know right okay yeah that that's that kind of makes a certain amount of sense and so you um i mean this is your songwriting on odyssey and oracle is you know by any stretch of the imagination pretty astounding um you were you must have felt 
pretty good, I would imagine, with your song tally going into those sessions. Oh, yes, I was. And I tell you, the, the best thing about Rod is he doesn't he doesn't like mistakes on stage right so when he when he screws up some piano playing at the intro or something we all look at each other it's right no. <laughs> he's not going to give us that dirty <laughs> look when we make a mistake <laughs> but the good thing about rod is basically when the zombies finished and he and i wanted to continue producing rod had the, all the, the three big hits yeah and so he said to me look why don't we put our joint names on our songs because one hit will make all the difference and that was incredibly generous of it him. It is, it is incredible. The next song was a big hit, was Hold Your Head Up, which I wrote. Yeah. Never regretted it at all because the, it was, it, it, that was a really wonderful thing that he did, you know. That's a really, yeah, that's the, the, absolutely. And it's, yeah. and actually, it's a very wise thing to do as well because, in terms of sustaining, enriching the, the, your long term creative yes. relationship, it kind of it, it liberates you, I think, in a way. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it, it's very clever. I'm interested in this kind of this thing about kind of the, the 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 subconscious adjustments you make when you know that you're writing for a particular voice and and you know I think about this kind of this persona that Colin projects through his singing uh, which may or may not be true I don't really know Colin so I I, I can't gauge it but then I think about a song like um, well maybe after he's gone. And it's such a it's such a lovely it's such a touching sentiment that like well maybe you know yeah. maybe after this has run its course I'm still here yeah I'm, I'm second rate but I'm still here <laughs> yeah and that's no, just, that was that was me writing I'm not I saying Collins <laughs> no but it's kind of we was that was that kind of ha I guess I'm wondering if that's a song that you would have written at all had it not had you not envisaged that Colin would sing it it's difficult to say because I wrote for Colin's voice hmm. um, and uh, he has such a wonderful voice and very English hmm. it's a lot of singers around that time had American accents because um, rock and roll was American but he sang with an English voice it's uh, the only other song I can think of that kind of thematically deals with that projects you know has the same kind of message is take a chance on me by abba oh which yes. again is sort of after yes <laughs> yes i'm still i'll be here yes. where all that's kind of yeah a bit like the loser takes the winner takes it all you know yeah yeah but um no no it's amazing that was a very emotional night the shepherd's bush night i think i really felt there was a charge that night that and i think it's definitely it's absolutely something to do with the fact that we we know that you know that you know there is a sense that everyone in that room everyone who still has a relationship with a record like that can can play a small part in restoring this well it's happened now already yes. but you know restoring this record to its sort of rightful place and you want to be kind of a part of that but it must be kind of crazy to be getting on with your lives and then to be suddenly kind of get the memo that actually this is a far more important record than maybe well, it, it felt like we did our best at the time. We thought it was the best thing we could do at the time. Mm. Then to have the justification 50 years later mm. which is, is wonderful, especially if you're old enough not to be swayed by it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the other interesting factor is when we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that day, to the day, 50 years earlier, uh, time of the season was the first time we went to number one in cash box in America, to that day. Wow. 50 years, exactly. 
That's a song that you know, um, you know, even my kids now. You know, the the you know, my youngest daughter when she was thirteen, she just discovered it somewhere, and I could hear it playing from her room. It is just a song that completely transcends the generations and um, continues to do so. Is it true that with the sleeve of that record, uh, is that? I, I read somewhere that you decided to just run with the misspelt title because no. you didn't want to upset the designer, Terry Quirk. Well, Terry Quirk, I was at art school with him, basically, and I was sharing flat with him and Rod. Mm. And when we were doing Odyssey and Oracle, he got, he got this idea, you know. Um, we said, Rod came out the idea of Odyssey and Oracle because the, the songs were about actions and stories. And we were busy, and he said, look, uh, showed us and we, in all the, the swirly writing, we didn't notice that he'd spelt it wrong. Right. And we only noticed when they showed us the the, the cover to, to be produced. And we said, oh, no, you've got to change that. It's too late. It's in production. <laughs> so Rod came out with the story that basically it was a cross between an ode and an odyssey. Right? <laughs> and we stuck to this, but we didn't tell Colin. And it was only a few years back. I saw an interview with Rod and Colin, and Rod was telling that story. And Colin turned around and said, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> it was about 40 years later we found out. Colin has got, you know, uh, last time I interviewed you, Colin, you know, it was all of you together. And um, Colin has, that's very, it seems to be very Colin. Colin seems to be sort of slightly, has a perpetual air of surprise about, I think there were about three things that came up in the interview that he also didn't know. Yes, it's very sweet. He also kind of uh, a quote, another quote from him I loved, which which actually gave me an idea for a documentary, which I went on to do for Radio Four. Was um, he said I I saw far more musicians eating greasy breakfasts at the M1 Blue Boar services oh, yes. than I ever saw popping pills. Absolutely. Well, we didn't take any drugs. I mean, I'm not trying to be clean or anything. The only person who smoked in the band was the drummer. That's cigarettes. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And and I I only just started smoking forty I, when I was forty. Really? Why? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> I was living in Spain at the time. Okay. Yeah. Was it something to do with divorce or something like that? No, no. It was uh, just that they were very cheap at twenty-five p a packet of Ducados. You know. <laughs> God, that's hilarious. How long, How soon afterwards did you give up again? Uh, well, I gave up about eight years ago and started two years later, and I'm now smoking a third of a cigarette when I throw it away. Ridiculous. It must, it must have been startling when you sort of you kind of hooked up with your old friends in the band, yeah. and they said, "You're smoking." No, I go outside and do it now. You know, okay. so I, I don't like it. It's ridiculous. I just it's just it's writing things. Sometimes you used to have a cigarette going on when you're writing. Of course, of course. Burning out in ashtrays. Um, so obviously, you know, famously. Um, the you, the zombies no longer existed by the time time of the season uh, topped the charts in America. Right. How long did it take you to kind of learn that there were pretend versions of the zombies kind of going around? Well, a few years later, actually. Oh, quite a few years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got knowledge of it, and then uh, Paul Atkinson was sent a tape for an, a radio interview. Had been to see a fake band, yeah. and they were inter there was somebody in the band called Hugh Grundy, who played bass. You see. And then the interviewer knew, knew that they were fake and basically led him up. They said, well, why why have you given up drums and playing bass? He said, well, the boys want me to be at the front, you know. <laughs> what, in an American accent? Well, it was a Northern English accent. And 
he said, and didn't you used to be five foot ten? Because his bloke was tiny. <laughs> and he owned up. He said it wasn't him. So it wasn't really. And well, then, one or two members of ZZ Top. Yes. Yeah. That, and we found uh, Rod boasts now that basically when we split up, we're going to go out as a fake ZZ Top band. <laughs> <laughs> Staple on the beard. Yes. And the way, yes, uh, yeah. and the way you go. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's this kind of strange episode. I'm kind of fascinated by this little period in your history because obviously you kind of went on to, uh, you stayed in music, obviously, in Argent, and obviously you worked on Colin's uh, yes. two solo albums. in the Three solo albums we did. All right, or three, okay, mm. excuse me. And there's also this, I'm fascinated by this strange period where um, Colin changed his name to Neil MacArthur. That he he his father said you got you can't hang around the house you've got to get a job so he went into insurance company and then she's not there have uh, time of the season happened and then mike hurst said uh why don't you try we why don't we record some things we'll do a new version of she's not there but he couldn't he had tried to join equity but there was already somebody called colin blunsdale <laughs> so he had to be called neil MacArthur. just picked out of the hat really basically yeah but it must have been very confused because he did it on top of the pops, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. It must have been very bewildering for like you know to, people to turn on the television and see someone who was manifestly Colin Blunstone calling himself Neil MacArthur doing a song that he had made famous. Yes. Uh, as Colin Blunstone. Yes. It was weird. But, but he kind of. But it seems to say a lot about the about his obliging nature. Well, he got but, and he got back in the studios again doing evening sessions, and um, then that. That, that paled for him and then I took him along to rehearsals with Rod and I were doing with Argent yeah and he got very excited and I said well we've got a deal with CBS in New York why don't we do an album with you and um, that was exciting his first album one year which again I think you know people and that and Dennis Moore as well which yes. people have a lot of affection for yeah um, which he co-produced yeah yes we got Chris Gunning in to do these great string arrangements he's a great arranger Scanning. and that did that was that a kind of more ag agreeable sort of arrangement for you had you decided by that point that the touring life was not for you well, no uh, when rod put the group together he wanted to be more progressive and his cousin jim rodford who sadly died a year ago um he when he first put the zombies helped put this equipment up for the zombies when they first got together before i was involved because he had a local band called the blue tones not the, yeah. the later thing and then he's a far better bass player than me. I'm really a songwriter who plays bass. Um, but Jim was a, great, was a great bass player, and he'd been the Kinks for 12 years as well. Hmm. And he got together with Rod and uh, 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 Argent together, and they were great sounding. So I, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to compete with such a good bass player, you know. Okay. But you, did, did, uh, does that, but you didn't have any... Did, did you still have that kind of... A, yeah, that yen, that urge... To be taught, or were you presumably you you were kind of had kids at that point? You maybe yes, it wasn't yeah. necessarily. But it was a bit like when I left art college. <clears throat> the minute I started writing songs, hmm. I didn't paint, and then the minute I stopped touring, I was producing. I didn't play the bass. You know, I still had a bass. Yeah, yeah, and had the arrangement that you have now, uh, you, where you know, sometimes. Sometimes you seem to be in the zombies, and sometimes you don't. <laughs> we only Hugh and I. The, uh, the there's Rod, Colin, Hugh, and yeah. I. We only do Odyssey and Oracle. Simple okay. as that, from beginning to end, as it was recorded, which goes down so well. Yeah. And of course, we've got Darren Sahanaja, mm. who 
and this next tour is going to be playing for Brian Wilson and us as well. He's he's he, he seems to be living his best life, just basically playing with his heroes on exactly. his favourite records. Lovely. And he's the only person who can tell Rod when he goes wrong. Why? Well, Why? because he's very quiet, Darian. And, and when we did the first rehearsals for Odyssey in Oracle, the Shepherd's Bush thing, he came up during one of the breaks and said, Rod, in so-and-so, you didn't play that, you played something else, you see. And Rod said, no, I didn't. And then he said, look, you did this. Said, Rod said, oh, yeah. I did. So he, even on stage now, he says the only person can tell him where he's going wrong because he did the same thing for Brian Wilson as well. You see, yeah, he did all yeah. stuff. He's great. Darren's fantastic. Yes, he he's universally loved, I think. Yes, he's a wonderful man. So we were talking earlier on about, so your is it your son that's unearthed a, a cache of unreleased songs by you recorded over the decades? Yeah, two of my sons, Matthew and Jamie. Um, I, I discovered, well, I realised I had to get rid of them. They were in my mother-in-law's attic for 23 years <clears throat> and so she kept asking us to <clears throat> do something about them and they discovered 50 boxes of tapes and cassettes and you know hard drives and <clears throat> and basically uh they they i said i'd like to put some of those songs you know and some of the nice ones i'd like to put them on youtube or something yeah and so they discovered at least i think nearly 200 songs uh, 180 of which were never released <clears throat> Which I've written with Matthew Fisher and Proko Horam. Yes, yeah, and and um, several other writers, and um, we went in studios and recorded them over since the seventies. Wow! So they they said we'd like to put them out. So they were going to put out eight CDs. One of them's out, well, not as a CD, as a promotional CD of thirteen tracks I'd recorded over those years. Wow! And um, and they're well geared for it because Matthew, my eldest son. St- did train as an engineer at yeah. Abbey Road, and front row, and then in the company which downloads for Spotify all the stuff on that drive. And the other son has his own band and was touring with the Zombies in America for a few years back wow, as okay. an opener. And um, so they're they're, they're going to start it as a business. So they're working here with Ace. With Nick as That's well. That's incredible. And how did well? There must have been songs that you'd forgotten that you'd written. Or Absolutely. I, in fact, I had to remember them, and I said, "Well, that was quite good. Did I write that? You know." <laughs> and then they said, "Yes, you did. You wrote that. It's your names on it, and so and so." So it's been quite a journey, really. Basically, listening to some of these songs I wrote fifty years ago, and listening to them as you would listen to a song by someone who yes. you you'd never heard before. Because yeah, because well, like, yeah, Colin singing on them and. Um, uh, was it Steve Gold from Rare Birds sang some of yeah. them with them and um, Maggie Ryder you know and some fantastic singers just doing session work you know so you just kind of like as a matter of course you get someone like Colin over just to say yeah. Look, uh, yes yeah that's lovely yeah okay and you still see and outside of the um, the ongoing Odyssey and Oracle sort of touring, which is coming coming up. Do you still have occasion? I guess you have occasion to see the band from time to time. Oh, just yeah, quite a bit. In fact, recently the American managers got married at Rod's house a few weeks back, and we all were there. You know, Rod and Colin gave her away, and and um, and uh, it was a fantastic occasion. You know, we had all the zombies there, and, uh, and the manager calls the, our children the zombie spawn. You know, so they were there as well. You know, my sons and, and Hugh's daughters and everything. So um, it was quite an interesting occasion. What went right? Well, why? What is it about the, this specific combination of people that that makes it still so pleasant to be around them? Where, whereas other bands, 
you see it all the time. You mentioned it earlier on. You see kind of recriminations, unresolved rivalries, petty sort of disputes that percolate through the years. You seem to have avoided all of those. Well, there have been occasions when we had arguments together, but oh. we grew up musically yeah, together. We learned our trade together. And that sticks with you. Yeah. And, um, I mean, after 54 years or whatever it is, um, we still like each other. We've had our disagreements, you know, we don't talk about certain things, but yeah. mostly we understand each other's manner. And, and, and funny enough, when we came back from New York, Hugh Grundy, who lives in Menorca, um, his wife, his friends there couldn't make it to New York, so she set up something to celebrate the induction and asked us to come over and not telling Hugh, he didn't know. So myself and my wife, who is on stage with us singing when we do Austin Oracle, and uh, Terry Quirk and his wife, we went over there. It was a bit like being witness protection because her, her friends kept hiding us in this little island. Until he finally had his band that he works with there uh, at, a, at a pub. Yeah. And we were arranging then T-shirts and everything, and he came in. She was trying to keep him away from us, and he walked right. in, and he suddenly saw us. Then went, <laughs> I can't use the expletive he used, but it was quite in the moment, you know. That's fantastic. Yeah. What was it that uh, I meant to ask earlier? What was it that Susanna Hoff said? It's amazing to have that intro from Susanna Hoff. Oh, she, she was wonderful. She said as a, as a young kid in the back of her mum's car hearing the zombies, and um, and she was just talking about the songs, and she was quite emotional about it. Yeah, of and, course. And she was really wonderful about it, and because because we remember from the Bangles and everything, you know. Mm. And she was just absolutely. She's lovely. She looks so young. She's in her sixties now. She was sixty. Oh my word! And she looks stunning now. And she's a, such a lovely lady. Well, they were. That was that was what the Bangles. You know, from the, their very inception, they were a, a band that was sort of defined by the records they loved. Yes, and I think that's kind of pretty much how they operate now. And she came along to some of our gigs in LA and to sing with us during rehearsals. She did like she did. This will be our year with Colin, and I was playing behind her. That was that was a fantastic feeling. Well, imagine how she must have felt. You know, oh, this yes. these songs that you grow up with. You know, yes. and you invest so much in. And we still continue to do that, which is why it's a, such a pleasure to have spent some time with you today. It's a pleasure to, um, to talk to you. Thank you very much, Chris White from The Zombies and, of course, from Argent. Um, thank you very much for joining me in the ACE podcast. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the ACE Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk all the wonderful music you could possibly need.